This is America's Web Radio. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome again. I appreciate your tuning in to listen. And this is the Wednesday, April the 13th, 2016 edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for airing at 7 p.m. on that date on AmericasWebRadio.com. And I am excited to start tonight's podcast with uh, the first time I can ever recall seeing evidence that those who are proponents of keeping and using firearms are taking notice of the terrible toll that they can take on the mentally ill and taking steps to do something about it. Um, In my opinion, those who value our Second Amendment rights should not be in conflict with uh, those of us, including myself, who value human life and particularly want to prevent taking of human life by those who suffer from depression and other mental illness. Uh, And finally, we see where uh, such efforts are taking place, and uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about it. Uh, So this article appeared in this Sunday's, this past Sunday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's called Flush with Guns, West Seeks to Curb Deaths. Um, Now, the intersection of guns and suicides was taboo in the western United States, uh, but apparently that's starting to change. In Montrose, Colorado, Keith Carey is a gunsmith. It is a town with a frontier flavor set amid the mesas of western Colorado. He's a staunch, though soft-spoken, defender of the right to bear arms. Yet he's now a willing recruit in a fledgling effort to see if the gun community itself, sellers and owners of firearms, operators of shooting ranges, can help Colorado and other western states reduce their highest in the nation suicide rates. Yeah, that might have come as a surprise. Uh, you might not have been able to guess or predict that, but that's right. The western states, uh, especially um, in the Rocky Mountain areas, have our highest suicide rates in the country. Now, uh, Mr. Carey was quoted as saying, Suicide is a tragedy no matter how it's done. His adult daughter killed herself with a mix of alcohol and antidepressants 
a few years ago on the East Coast. However, he sees the logic in trying gun-specific prevention strategies in towns like Montrose, where guns are an integral part of daily life. He says, it's very expedient for people to commit suicide by a firearm without too much forethought. Unfortunately, it's generally effective. He's exactly right. Uh, when there is a firearm available uh, and someone is just that badly mentally tortured, uh, the lethal means is readily available. It doesn't take much thought. You just put the gun to your head, pull the trigger, it's done. And uh, the problem also, what he means by being generally effective, is that whereas, uh, and again, this is mentioned later in the article, but with other suicide methods, uh, there's a much greater likelihood that the person will survive the suicide attempt and somehow be able to be saved, not so if they're using a firearm. At the urging of a local police commander, Carrie agreed last year to participate in the Gun Shop Project, a state-funded program in which gun sellers and range operators in five western Colorado counties were invited to help raise awareness about suicide. It's a tentative but promising bid to open up a conversation on a topic that's been virtually taboo in these western states, the intersection of guns and suicide. Carrie's shop counter now displays wallet-sized cards with information about a suicide hotline. A poster by the door offers advice about ways to keep guns away from friends or relatives at risk of killing themselves. Carrie says some customers take materials home or ask a few questions. The conversations tend to be brief. Suicide is one of those morose subjects that a lot of us don't want to talk about, he said, but it's all too common. I believe any method of suicide prevention is worth a good, hard try. Across the United States, suicides account for nearly two-thirds of all gun deaths, far outnumbering gun homicides. In 2014, According to federal data, there were 33,599 firearm deaths, 21,334 of them were suicides. That figure represents about half of all suicides that year. But in several western Colorado counties and in some other Rocky Mountain states with high gun ownership rates, more than 60% of suicides involve firearms. Along with Alaska, the states with the highest rates form a contiguous block. Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico all have age-adjusted suicide rates at least 50% higher than the national rate of 12.93 suicides per 100,000 people. Montana's rate, 23.80, is the highest in the nation. Between 2000 and 2014, gun suicides increased 
by more than 51% in those states, while rising by less than 30% nationwide. Theories abound as to why rates are so high. Commonly cited factors include the isolation and economic hard times in rural areas of these states. There's also belief that a self-reliant frontier mindset deters some Westerners from seeking help when depression sinks in. We embrace the cowboy mentality, says Jared Hindman, director of Colorado's Office of Suicide Prevention. He says, if you're suffering, suck it up. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But that doesn't work very well if you're suicidal. Underlying all these explanations is the fact that firearms are more ubiquitous in the West than in most other parts of the country. Catherine Barber, a suicide prevention expert at the Harvard School of Public Health, says residents of gun-owning homes are at higher risk of suicide than other people, simply because a suicide attempt is more likely to involve a gun. According to federal estimates, suicide attempts involving firearms succeed 85% of the time, which you might be surprised that it isn't higher than that, compared to less than 10% of attempts involving drug overdoses and several other methods uh, succeed, if you want to characterize it that way, in uh, the person committing suicide. Now, it's not that gun owners are more suicidal, Barber argues. It's that they're more likely to die in the event that they become suicidal because they are using a gun. Colorado's Gun Shop Project is modeled after a program pioneered in New Hampshire. Barber helped design the initiative and hopes collaboration on firearm suicide prevention can spread nationwide. In the past, people shut up about this issue because they thought raising it meant raising the issue of gun control, she said. It makes so much more sense to look at gun owners as part of the solution. Hindman said that when he joined the state health department in 2004, talking about the role of firearms in suicide was discouraged. It's still a sensitive topic, he said, but some funding has materialized for gun-specific initiatives. In Montrose, police commander Keith Caddy has been around guns since childhood. Now he's doing outreach for the gun shop project, and most of the businesses he has visited agreed to display suicide awareness materials once they were assured it wasn't a gun takeaway program in disguise. It's my duty to protect the community I serve, Caddy said. If I can go out there and spend a little time talking to the gun shops, maybe the reward will be saving someone's life. Suicide presents a distinctive challenge for shooting ranges. Occasionally, someone will rent a gun 
then use it to commit suicide. At the family shooting center in Denver, there have been three such incidents, including two since Doug Hamilton began managing the range in 2004. Hamilton is open to letting his staff get suicide prevention training, though he's unsure it would help. Those who killed themselves at his range exhibited no signs of stress beforehand. Suicide prevention brochures aren't something that anyone's going to pick up who has come out to our range to kill themselves, he said. He raises a good point. We'll expand on that briefly and get to the rest of this article after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And right now we're talking about uh, a groundbreaking program uh, in Colorado to look at Suicide prevention led by gun owners and those who value Second Amendment rights tremendously um, and uh, the refreshing intersection between those who value our Second Amendment rights and yet still want to prevent people from committing suicide by using guns. Uh, Right before the break, we're talking about someone who owns and runs a shooting range in Denver and he was talking about how it's hard to uh, tell when someone is going to be one of those folks who will rent a gun and then use it to kill themselves. He said that those who killed themselves at his range exhibited no signs of stress beforehand. I just wanted to comment about that briefly and then we'll get back to the rest of the article about the prevention effort, sometimes, if not most of the time, when someone has made the decision to commit suicide, instead of 
appearing outwardly in a great deal of emotional stress and distress, it would be fairly common that they would show no such signs whatsoever. And uh, this is very disturbing indeed uh, to people who uh, find out after the fact that someone they talk to a short time later committed suicide. The reason is that once people have finally made that decision, uh, it actually can be quite cathartic for them, and they may feel at more mental and emotional peace having come to that uh, terrible decision. Um, and, and that's uh, unfortunately common to situations when uh, anyone has decided they're going to attempt suicide, no matter what the method. Well, getting back to the prevention efforts in place out west. Uh, challenges uh, about trying to get more prevention ideas out there are familiar to Dr. Michael Viktorov. He is a Denver area physician whose leisure time passion is competitive shooting. He was at this same shooting range, the Family Shooting Center in Denver, when one of the suicides occurred there. Viktorov belongs to the American Medical Association and the National Rifle Association, and he has qualms about both groups. He said the medical community has been content not to know anything about gun culture and gun safety. As for the NRA, he'd like to see suicide prevention highlighted in its training materials. While I take issue with his characterization that the AMA uh, doesn't know anything about gun culture and gun safety and hasn't taken positions on it, uh, I think they have. Uh, it's a very delicate issue, and they, uh, like so many other politicians and uh, poli political groups and agencies, are wary of being strongly attacked by the NRA if they come out with anything that uh, suggests uh, curbing guns, even if it is because of any health-related concerns. And uh, I have to agree with him wholeheartedly that, um, you know, as an NRA member and as a physician, he wants the NRA to pay more attention to suicide prevention, um, and uh, I think that would be a great idea. Over the years, firearm suicide has not been a high-profile issue for the NRA, it worries that the topic might be used to advance a gun control agenda. Though the NRA has no position on Colorado's gunshot project, it has endorsed a bill in Washington State encouraging gun dealers to participate in suicide prevention efforts, said spokeswoman Jennifer Baker. Hopefully this is the beginning of NRA participating in curbing firearm-related suicides in a positive fashion and not uh, being too concerned that such effort would lead to uh, curbing gun possession, which, of course, it's not about that at all. It's about making gun possession safer, uh, especially when it comes to people who are mentally ill and may be prone to suicide. Throughout Colorado, prevention efforts are fueled to a large degree 
by people who've lost friends and loved ones to suicide. Cindy Harley, a teacher and board member of the Grand Junction-based Western Colorado Suicide Prevention Foundation, grew up in what she called a real gun family in Salida, Colorado, and had her own gun by the time she was five. But she gave up shooting after her brother John killed himself with a pistol in 1980 at age 29. And she was quoted as saying, nothing is as final as a gunshot. She was 13 at the time her brother took his life. In the northwest counties of Root and Moffat, the gunshot project is coordinated by Megan Francone, who constantly reassures gun owners and sellers that the outreach program poses no threat. She got involved after her 15-year-old brother-in-law fatally shot himself in 2010. She says, keep your guns, keep a dozen, I don't care, but please make sure they are locked and out of the reach of someone who's in a crisis. She said, I'm not asking any gun shop owner to be a psychologist. I'm asking them to be their brother's keeper. Can't put it more eloquently than that. Well, I find this extremely heartening. Again, this is an effort to prevent suicides by firearms by people who sell and own guns and value Second Amendment rights and have no desire for those rights to be curbed whatsoever. It is high time such efforts became more widespread and that the NRA embraced them and hopefully uh, this will save lives uh, while taking away no one's guns whatsoever. Uh, I sincerely hope this effort continues and I encourage those of you who uh, may be gun shop owners or shooting range owners yourself or friends or family members of those who are, to learn more about the Colorado Gunshot Project and try to replicate such efforts in your own communities. And, uh, you know, hopefully this way some lives can be saved. And you might ask, well, what difference does it make if someone wants to kill themselves, even if they didn't have access to a gun so easily, they're going to find a way to do it anyway, aren't they? Well, of course, you have an excellent point. That's very true. But I can tell you that many, many times when people get to that terrible, terrible, low, desperate point and they attempt suicide with a different method and they survive the attempt long enough to get into treatment and get help for the mental illness that drove them to that point, Many, if not most of these people, are very grateful to be alive, grateful that their effort to take their life failed. Someone who uses a firearm is not going to have that opportunity. Again, I remind you what the article said. When involving firearms, suicide attempts are 85% uh, likely to result in fatality whereas only 10% for any other method. 
Um, so therefore, efforts such as these definitely are well worth it and uh, will save lives, even if people choose other methods to attempt suicide. All right, well, we're going to take our attention now to a couple of articles looking again at the intersection between psychiatric problem, in this case depression, and physical illness. And really, uh, as, I, as I say that, I'm reminded of my contention that psychiatric illness is physical illness. It's not that there's something different or separate about it from the human body. Uh, when you get right down to it, it's all physical, um, emotions, feelings. They reside in the brain, which is a physical organ. But what we're talking about specifically is the intersection between the illness of depression and cardiovascular disease. And first of the two articles we're going to look at is about how improving depression symptoms can reduce the risk of major cardiovascular problems. Depression is a known risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but as a person's depression improves or grows worse, their risk for heart disease has remained largely unknown. But now, a new study found that effectively treating depression can reduce a patient's chance of having a stroke heart failure, a heart attack, or death. In fact, effective treatment for depression can reduce a patient's heart risks to the same level as those who never had short-term depression. The study shows that prompt, effective treatment of depression appears to improve the risk of poor heart health. With the help of past research, they know depression affects long-term cardiovascular risks, but knowing that alleviating the symptoms of depression reduces a risk, a person's risk of heart disease in the short term too, can help care providers and patients commit more fully to treating the symptoms of depression. The key conclusion of the study is if depression isn't treated, the risk of cardiovascular complications increases significantly. Results of the study were presented at the 2016 American College of Cardiology Scientific Sessions in Chicago on April the 2nd. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll look more at the intersection between depression, treating it, and reducing risk of cardiovascular side effects, and more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how improving symptoms of depression can reduce the risk of major cardiovascular problems. Researchers haven't completely understood whether a short-term encounter with depression affects a person's cardiovascular risk forever or how changes in the symptoms of depression over time affect cardiovascular risk. The researchers found answers to these questions by studying a database of more than 100,000 patients. The team compiled information from 7,550 patients who completed at least two depression questionnaires over the course of one to two years. Patients were categorized based on the results of their survey as never depressed, no longer depressed, remained depressed, or became depressed. Following each patient's completion of the last questionnaire, Patients were followed to see if they had any major cardiovascular problems, such as a stroke, heart failure, heart attack, or death. At the conclusion of the study, 4.6% of patients who were no longer depressed had a similar occurrence of major cardiovascular complications as those who had no depression at all, 4.8%. Those who remained depressed, however, and those who became depressed throughout the study had increased occurrences of major cardiovascular problems. Their rates were 6 and 6.4% respectively. Treatment for depression resulted in a decreased risk of cardiovascular risk that was similar to someone who didn't have depression. As for the practical application of this study, the research indicates that effective treatment for depression decreases the risk of having cardiovascular problems in the short term, but further study is needed to identify exactly what that treatment should include. Because of the complex nature of depression, It's hard to say whether depression leads to risk factors associated with cardiovascular problems, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels, diabetes, or a lack of exercise, or if it's the other way around. 
Results from the study indicate that changes in depression symptoms may also cause immediate physiological changes in the body, which in turn cause major cardiovascular problems to occur in the short term. But further studies are needed to further answer these questions. Well, it seems pretty obvious what the connection is. We do know that in states of depression, there are higher blood levels of stress hormones, especially cortisol and noradrenaline. And what do those stress hormones do? Well, they increase the production and circulation of inflammatory proteins. That's right, it's inflammation is the common pathway here between the depression and the cardiovascular disease. And these inflammatory proteins can not only increase the risk of disease in the heart, uh, but also things like diabetes and uh, asthma. So again, uh, cytokines, which are the name for the broad group of uh, inflammatory proteins, again, that are stimulated in response to stress hormones, are the connection here as to why relieving depression would lower the risk of cardiovascular disease and complications. And I also found an article that talks about how elevated troponin, and we'll explain what that is, is linked to what's called mental stress ischemia in heart disease patients. Um, There are higher baseline levels of troponin, which is a heart muscle damage marker in the blood, in people who experience ischemia, that is uh, a, a reaction the heart has in response to stress. All right, so let's get into the article and all this will be explained. Some people with heart disease experience a restriction of blood flow to the heart in response to psychological stress. Usually silent, that is not painful, the temporary restriction in blood flow is what's called ischemia. And that is an indicator of greater mortality risk. So again, mental stress ischemia is when psychological stress leads to restriction of blood flow to the heart. Cardiologists at Emory University School of Medicine right here in Atlanta have discovered that people in this group tend to have higher levels of troponin. Troponin is a protein whose presence in the blood is a sign of recent damage to the heart muscle all the time, independently of whether they are experiencing stress or chest pain at the moment. So again, what they found is in people who experience this mental stress cardiac ischemia, they have higher levels of troponin in their blood, again, which is a measure of damage to heart muscle. Um, So perhaps this is also in part an explanation for what was found in the previous article that we talked about, where if you uh, reduce or treat depression, 
you reduce cardiovascular complications. <clears throat> Maybe this, uh, these findings uh, explain that mechanism somehow. The results of this troponin and mental stress ischemia study were to be presented at the American College of Cardiology meeting in Chicago on April the 3rd, the day after the data from the previous study we talked about. Elevated troponin levels in patients with coronary artery disease may be a sign that they are experiencing repeated ischemic events in everyday life with either psychological or physical triggers. Doctors test for troponin in the blood to tell whether someone has recently had a heart attack. But the levels seen in this study were lower than those used to diagnose a heart attack, less than a standard cutoff of 26 picograms per milliliter in a range that only a high sensitivity test for troponin could detect. The Emory team studied 587 people with known coronary artery disease who were asked to undergo both a mental stress test involving public speaking on an uncomfortable topic and a conventional exercise stress test on a treadmill. Blood flow to the heart was monitored by SPECT imaging. A few people were unable to exercise at a high heart rate and had to have pharmacological stress test with a drug that dilates the coronary arteries. 16% of the study participants developed mental stress-induced ischemia, again that's restriction of blood flow, and 35% developed conventional, either exercise or pharmacological stress-induced ischemia. In the mental stress ischemia group, the average baseline, that is before the stress, uh, their levels of troponin were markedly higher than the rest, 5.9 picograms per milliliter compared to 4.1. The authors state this is the first study to date showing the effects of mental stress-induced ischemia on a marker of myocardial damage, however subtle that damage may be. Although this difference in troponin levels between those with and without ischemia is small, the difference has been shown by other investigators to predict increased risk of future heart attacks and death. 75% of the study participants who developed mental stress ischemia developed ischemia in response to exercise as well. Baseline troponin levels were also higher in the exercise-induced ischemia group, 5.4 picograms per milliliter compared to 3.9. When doctors tested for troponin 45 and 90 minutes after the mental stress test, they detected a small average increase in the mental stress ischemia group that was not statistically significant. The exercise test did result in a significant increase in troponin in the exercise-induced ischemia group, 
This may be because the exercise test lasts longer and puts more demands on the heart. The bottom line to all of this is that here is a direct mechanism where states of mental and psychological stress that would lead to restriction of blood flow to the heart lead to actual damage to cardiac muscle tissue. Uh, something that I have to admit really has not been talked about um, or studied to my knowledge uh, much up until now. <clears throat> and again, this could be a way of starting to unravel the known connections, which up until now are only associations uh, because the underlying mechanisms were not known uh, between depression and cardiovascular disease. All of this with these last two articles we just discussed, I feel goes a long way to demonstrate in a very tangible way that there are connections between states like stress and depression and the health of the rest of the body. And this uh, argues against people who claim uh, that depression isn't really a disease, that it's somehow uh, just represents a weakness on the part of the person who simply should snap themselves out of it. Uh, this is a clear demonstration that depression is a real disease. It is very much physical, and it affects other organs in the body in a very negative way. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll have more mental health-related news. When we come back, you are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. 
But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up, an article showing how scientists have found certain areas of the brain that are related to specific types of behavior. Specifically, sensation-seeking may be linked to specific brain anatomy Uh, people prone to seeking stimulation and acting impulsively may have differences in the structure of their brains, according to a study published in the April 6th issue of the Journal of Neuroscience. What's more, those differences may predispose them to substance abuse. A psychologist at Yale University and a team of researchers from Harvard University and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston found that increased impulsivity and sensation-seeking in healthy young adults was linked to distinct differences in their brain structures, the areas involved in decision-making and self-control had a thinner cortex. The cortex is the brain's wrinkled outer layer, or the gray matter. This study builds on well-established links between impulsivity, sensation-seeking, and substance abuse. Prior research indicates genes play a role in these behaviors. Other studies conclude substance use can affect brain anatomy and function over time. Scientists don't know the extent to which brain abnormalities present prior to drug taking contribute to the likelihood that a person will develop a substance abuse disorder. Researchers examined the variability in brain structure among 1,234 males and females aged 18 to 35, with no history of psychiatric disorders or substance dependence. Using magnetic resonance imaging, the team measured the size of particular regions of the brain for each participant. The participants also completed questionnaires assessing traits associated with sensation-seeking and impulsivity such as their need for novel and intense experiences, willingness to take risks, and a tendency to make rapid decisions. The participants also reported alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine usage. They found that people who reported seeking high levels of stimulation or excitement had reduced cortical thickness or gray matter in brain regions associated with 
decision-making, and self-control. The strongest links occurred in brain areas related to the ability to regulate emotions and behavior, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the middle frontal gyrus. Changes in those brain structures also correlated with participants' self-reported tendency to act on impulse and with heightened use of alcohol, tobacco, or caffeine. The findings allow a better understanding of how normal variation in brain anatomy in the general population might bias both temperamental characteristics and health behaviors, including substance abuse. A strength of the study is that they identify this relationship within non-substance using participants, implying that these variations are not merely the consequence of individual history of substance use. The significance of individual variability in brain anatomy is still a subject of debate. The scientists plan to continue to examine how shifts in both brain anatomy and function might affect these and other behaviors associated with risk for psychiatric illness and poor health outcomes. All right, now, next up on Psychiatry Today, I have another military and veterans mental health update for you. It turns out that pituitary insufficiency is prevalent after blast concussion in military veterans. Uh, this study will give us insights into the connections that have been seen between traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder in our combat veterans, because uh, <clears throat> there is a strong association between those two entities. A study in military veterans finds that explosive blast-related concussions frequently result in hormone changes leading to problems such as sleep disturbances, fatigue, depression, and poor quality of life. The research, which was to have been presented last Saturday at the Endocrine Society's 98th Annual Meeting in Boston, evaluated hormone levels in 41 male veterans who had been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. Some of these hormone deficiencies, which mimic some symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, may be treated successfully with hormone replacement if correctly diagnosed. Although studies in civilians indicate a 25 to 50 percent prevalence of hormonal deficiencies resulting from brain injuries, surprisingly, there are limited data on their prevalence and symptoms in military veterans. In this Department of Veterans Affairs funded study, the researchers took blood samples from 27 veterans with one or more blast concussions sustained at least one year earlier and from 14 previously deployed veterans with no history of blast exposure. They measured 11 hormones in the blood 
related to the pituitary systems. The pituitary gland, located at the base of the brain, is called the master gland because it affects almost all parts of the body. Importantly, it sits in a small depression at the base of the skull called the cella turcica. They found that 12 or 44% of blast concussed veterans had irregular hormone levels indicating an underactive pituitary gland, also known as hypopituitarism. In contrast, only 1 or 7% of the 14 study participants without blast injuries had abnormal hormone levels. To try to relate specific hormone problems with particular symptoms, the researchers administered questionnaires and tests about sleep, fatigue, depression, social isolation, memory, PTSD, and quality of life. On every test, participants who had mild traumatic brain injury and hypopituitarism had more problems than did participants with mild traumatic brain injury but no hypopituitarism and those with no blast exposure. Veterans with mild traumatic brain injury with hormonal abnormalities had significantly poorer overall sleep quality, more depressive symptoms, and were more easily fatigued than were veterans with mild traumatic brain injury and normal hormone levels. This represents a new way to evaluate the victims of traumatic brain injury and a new avenue of treatment in advance in the care of our veterans investigating the links between traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. What the article about this research doesn't mention is, is it possible that because of where it's located at the base of the brain, as I mentioned before, that the pituitary gland itself is uniquely vulnerable to damage uh, from the blast concussion that the traumatic brain injury patients have suffered? And is that the reason for the post-concussive hypopituitarism? Interesting to note, but again, uh, hopefully this will lead to more victims of blast concussion being evaluated closely for any endocrine, especially pituitary abnormalities, uh, treat them, uh, thus bettering uh, their prospects for a good recovery after the traumatic brain injury. Lastly, on psychiatry today, choir singing boosts the immune system activity in cancer patients and their carers. Singing in a choir for just one hour boosts levels of immune proteins in people affected by cancer, reduces stress, and improves mood, which in turn can have a positive impact on overall health. Published on April 4th in eCancer Medical Science, the research raises the possibility that singing in choir rehearsals could help to put people in the best possible position to receive treatment maintain remission, and support cancer patients. They tested 193 members of different choirs 
singing for an hour was associated with significant reductions in stress hormones, such as cortisol, and increases in the quantities of cytokines, uh, proteins of the immune system, which can boost the body's ability to fight serious illnesses. This could enhance the way we support people with cancer in the future. The study also found that those with the lowest levels of mental well-being and the highest levels of depression experienced greatest mood improvement associated with lower levels of inflammation in the body, and we know about the links between inflammation and mental and physical illness. They took saliva samples before and then again after just an hour of singing and looked at the changes in a number of hormones, immune proteins, and other chemicals. Research has shown that depression and stress can suppress immune activity when patients see it more than ever. And it's exciting in that just singing could reduce some of this stress-induced suppression of the immune system and uh, help them to better able to recover. Can you imagine what this can do if you don't have something as serious as cancer? And with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you had a a good time listening to this information that I had a good time bringing to you. And hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.